I'm glad to hear that y'all are reading um, things that are more encouraging than all this death and destruction and judgment uh, from the book of Amos. But nonetheless, um, as we've seen before, there are also um, some very wonderful parts of God's love and compassion for his people, of his willingness to forgive and to give second and third chances um, and, and more. And some of us know this from our own um, testimonies. So okay. Today we're doing the second half of Amos. And we're starting with um, chapter 5. So we thought we'd just remind us uh, of our overview from last week. These are just the same slides that we used last week. Um, so you remember we discussed all of this last week, the judgment upon the nations at the beginning of Amos, and then uh, really the, the heart of uh, Amos's prophecy, his case against the northern nation of Israel there in, in 3.1 through 5.17, and that's where we stopped. And like we said, you could interpret 5.18 to 6.14 also as part of that case against Israel, or you can see it as fitting into a, uh, a larger discussion of the day of the Lord, which includes the judgment against Israel, but will also include some other things as well. And so that's how we chose to break this down. So tonight we're going to talk about 518 to the end of uh, the book, which will include um, an introduction to the, the theme of the day of the Lord, then uh, a series of visions that Amos has uh, that's interrupted briefly with an interaction between him and a priest, and then uh, God's vindication of Israel or restoration of Israel at the end. So, so in, in the middle part of, of chapter 5, verses 18 and following, um, Amos uh, really speaks to the, the people who are sort of the prophecy guys, the, the, the people who really like to study prophecy in the end, and they're anxious about the day of the Lord. Um, you might you know, know some folks who are sort of, I'm looking forward to that final day. Well, in Amos's day, he says to the people, uh, don't, don't pray for it. Don't look for it. Don't wish for it because it's, it's as if you ran into a lion and you barely escaped with your life from the lion. And then you ran into a bear and you barely escaped from the bear. You get back to your house. And as you're catching your breath, you put your hand on the, uh, on the side of the, the wall and then and you're bit by a snake. Um, and he says, you know, that day is a day of darkness, not light. Now, of course, we'll, we'll talk a little more about this later, but he's, he's speaking of the day of the Lord as a day of judgment on the, the nation of Israel, the northern nation. It's also a day of judgment on the nations, all peoples, and, uh, but it's also going to include restoration, as we'll see at the end. So in, uh, in five 21 through 6, 6, then he lays out uh, a case against Israel. Um, you have uh, criticism of hypocrisy in Israel. Notice he uses this language that God hates their festivals and their new moons. He, he says, I will not accept your offerings. Um, if you sing hymns, I'm not going to listen to them. Or if you play your harp, it's not going to do anything. And of course, 
the point here isn't, I don't want you to worship. <laughs> the point is, is I don't want hypocrisy in your worship. Your worship is virtually meaningless if your heart's not in it, if you don't really love the Lord. And then it's not, it, it's not even just like God will ignore you. It's like an offense to him. So, you know, he says your assemblies are like a stench to me. They reek. You know, I hate them. I'm sick of them. This sounds just like um, the preaching of Isaiah. If you look at Isaiah in uh, chapter one and two, and, uh, you know, in the end, he says, I, I can't even look at you. All right. It just makes him sick. But that's not to say that the prophets are against the Levitical uh, worship system, right? So it's it's not to say they're they're uh, abrogating the the proper worship. And in fact, what we'll see is what they're doing is they're advocating a return to proper worship, but their preaching is against false worship. Now, of course, there's a there's a very famous quote in here from uh, chapter five, verse twenty four. You see it on the slide there. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Of course, Martin Luther King Jr. used this section of Amos to speak of social justice and uh, and uh, to speak out against the ills of racism in American society in the 1950s and 60s and, and prior and probably would have said uh, continuing. Um, but... <clears throat> We'll talk about we'll talk about that notion of social justice a little bit later uh, in the in the class when we get to the end. Um, here in chapter six, though, he he sort of lays out his case uh, against Israel, and I think Stefano was going to say something about that. Well, he starts out, "Woe to those at ease in Zion! There are people who are just um, taking it easy and just having a party." Um, they're relaxing, they're complacent, and they care nothing for their spiritual life. They care nothing for the spiritual life of Israel. And um, they just feel no urgency for the spiritual situation of the nation. They have everything that they need, everything that they want, except they don't have the Lord's favor. And so there's going to come disaster to Israel. They're kind of resting on their laurels. Like we, we mentioned last week, Israel was in a, a, a state of relative peace. And so the um, we apologize for our dog, by the way. He's out there barking. But um, it, was this, it, was a, it was a position of relative peace. And so maybe, and in fact probably, some of the people assumed that they had the favor of God because they had won military victories. They had taken back land. And they were in a in a position of uh, relative um, uh, prosperity. So um, you know the the Hebrew basically translates to the party's over. <laughs> the party's over for them. They want to be first uh, first in line for um, partying and relaxing and enjoying themselves, enjoying an easy lifestyle. And he says you're going to be the first <clears throat> to go into exile. You'll be at the head of the parade into exile. And in the second part of chapter 6, then, he starts laying out some of the horrors of what would take place in an Assyrian invasion. And, of course, this is, this is much like Jonah to the Assyrians. This is really a warning of things to come if they don't repent. And, of course, we know they don't. So in um, verses 9 and 10, there's this interesting little interaction. It seems like what it's telling us is that 
basically um, <coughs> all the households will be virtually obliterated so that there will not even be a relative from the immediate family to perform funeral rites. And um, there's a place that says, you know, don't, don't mention the name of Yahweh. It's like they don't want to mention the name of God because they're under his curse and they know it. It's like they don't want to provoke him. And so both the great house and the small house are going to be destroyed. Everybody will suffer um, equally. Um, and uh, moving on, I mean, the, the reason for this is because Israel has done what is ridiculous. They have accomplished the absurd. Um, they've turned justice into poison. They've turned righteousness into bitterness. And so a nation is coming against Israel and will take, uh, will take everything away from them, including their hard-fought, battle-earned land. Remember we talked last time about um, Jeroboam II and how he was such a warrior. He had conquered all this land for Israel from the very top, um, Libo Hamath, to close to the bottom, to the south, um, to something called the Brook of Arabah. And Amos says specifically, all of that is going to go. Okay, so after chapter 6, then we're introduced to a series of visions that Amos is given uh, regarding possible punishments of Israel and the, uh, the recompense that's coming upon them for their uh, rejection of the Lord and for their false worship of Ashtoreth and Baal and other false gods. So in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, we have... Uh, the first vision is of a locust swarm. So we've seen this vision, this uh, this notion before as a judgment of God. And here um, in uh, 7, 1 through 3, we, we have a locust swarm that arrives. And what's interesting in verse 1, it says it arrives after the farmers have put all their work into pruning the harvest and gleaning the first crop. Some Some translations say after the king's mowing or something like that. And, and so it's after the first gleaning. And if locusts were to come at this time, there would be no time to recover and, and replant for that season. In other words, at, uh, a locust swarm coming at that time would uh, inevitably lead to widespread starvation. Um, what's interesting about the way this is worded here with this after the king's mowing is some commentators believe that the reference to this king's mowing speaks to the privilege, uh, the privilege of the government to take the harvest first, which suggests that the palace and perhaps the military would eat while the common laborer, that the people that actually did the farming, would go hungry. And this, this kind of scenario is not atypical in militaristic cultures, and it kind of speaks to classism and a lack of concern uh, among the, the, the higher classes for the average citizen. I mean, we, we could even say, or we might even see it as a case where the legal, the economic, the governmental, and the social structures are all set up in such a way as to disadvantage some persons while privileging others. And God's decision to relent could be seen as not only a response to Amos's intercession, because Amos says, Lord, please know, and God relents, but also due to God's compassion for the poor. Um, I think this may be saying more than is in the text, because none of this is made explicit, but it's interesting to note this 
sort of particular notion of the locust swarm. Some of those videos we showed were current, and some of the pictures I had were from from uh, Africa, but it's the same same situation that you're talking about, that those locust swarms that have come in the last uh, year or two uh, were where those pictures came from. In the second vision, he receives, it's, it's of a massive fire, and um, particularly interesting in his description about this fire is the reference, he says, the, the reference to the great deep being affected by the fire. Um, so it's unclear what kind of fire he's talking about. So I've got a couple of slides here. I'm just going to move through them quickly. Um, the first one is, what kind of fire is this? Is this a supernatural fire falling down from heaven like on Sodom and Gomorrah? Or is it a description of a volcanic eruption? We know there was an earthquake uh, relatively uh, recently, so there were there were um, changes in there were seismic activity. Let's say so it could be a volcanic eruption. Others think that this might be referring to widespread drought and fires that consume um, the the harvests. Um, but like I said, what's what's really interesting about this is that it it refers to the great deep. Uh, normally, the the word that refers to the great deep is used as a reference to the bottom of the ocean. Um, so, you know, our question might be, what sort of fire is going to dry up the water to the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> I mean, it might just be hyperbole because prophets oftentimes use hyperbole. You know, they use exaggeration to drive home a point. Um, but maybe it's talking about something like volcanic uh, activity that, that reaches to the depths of the ocean. Uh, some have also suggested, suggested that this refers to a severe drought that reaches even to subterranean waters below the ground, so that, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe this is what's happening. Um, but it also, it also might refer to a chastisement of the Israelite appropriation of pagan myths uh, into their own worship, the pagan myths of the Middle Eastern cultures, the Canaanites. For example, the word for the deep is is a Hebrew word tehom. It's like T E H O M, um, and in some ancient texts, it's associated with the Babylonian creator goddess Tiamat. So I've got that on your slide at the bottom there, um, who was like a, a a turtle or a dragon type creature that ends up being cut in half and the body is sacrificed and made into the waters above and the waters below in the Babylonian myths. At any rate, read in this way, a supernatural fire that destroys Tehom, uh, understood this way, could be seen as God's judgment upon his people for their paganism, as well as his declaration that the that the pagan gods are impotent before him. Perhaps. We're, we're not sure. Or it may just be a drought, as I said, uh, that's, that's offered. It's just kind of an interesting aside. The third vision is of a plumb line. Um, there's some interesting debate about the language because the word that is often translated plumb line in, in most uh, English Bibles is a word that we really don't know what it means. It's, uh, it's, it's a Hebrew word that only appears four times in the Bible, all right here. 
and it seems like it might be similar to an Akkadian word for tin or some kind of metal, but we just we just don't know. Um, a lot of a lot of scholars have stuck with plumb line because of the references to a wall and straightness and measuring and this sort of thing um, being held to a standard. Um, whatever it means, what we see is that God is holding it in his hand and it's being used as a, like a measure over against uh, God's people ultimately, right? It, Amos recognizes it as indicating Israel's failure spiritually and God's impending judgment that will that will not be averted and God's judgment that's also not arbitrary, right? It's measured. Um, he's holding his people to a standard, right? The plumb line is the standard. Something that's something that's uh, or the wall is the standard, and the plumb line is what holds you to that standard. Um, and, and Israel is obviously crooked right now and not meeting the standard. The way that it describes the plumb line, it says that it's in their midst. It's the same kind of language that we saw back in 517, where he says, I'll, I'll pass through them. I'm not going to pass by them and, anymore. So this plumb line will be in their midst. It, it won't spare them anymore now. It's going to pass right through them. And um, the sanctuaries, he talks about the sanctuaries that are going to be uh, devastated. Um, and he talks about Isaac, Israel, and the house of Jeroboam. And, um, of course, when he does that, that kind of brings to mind several of the sanctuaries that we mentioned last time that um, have high places set up. So um, uh, the sanctuary of, of Isaac, I mean, it could be just referring, you know, to Israel because Isaac is in the family. But it so happens that Isaac settled near Beersheba, where one of those sanctuaries is. And Beersheba actually means well of the oath. So that's associated with Isaac, and it was where there was a high place. Sanctuaries of Israel are at Bethel and Dan, and um, the house of Jeroboam that's mentioned um, also is associated with Dan and Bethel, and quite possibly there was a high place in Samaria as well. One, one interesting question that scholars uh, are unsure of is what exactly is the plumb line that's being held, right? Is it... Um, I would have thought, and I, my initial thought, and I think I still think this is the case, is that it's the, the Torah, the Word of God, right, the law, uh, the, the revealed Word of God to the people, which would also include, of course, the preaching of the true prophets, like Amos, for example. Um, so we might say the plumb line is the Word of God. Uh, some scholars think that the plumb line is actually the prophet himself, Amos, who is there amid, amongst the people, um, another suggestion that I haven't seen any in any of the commentaries, but it would certainly make sense, is that maybe it's just God himself is the, the plumb line. Yeah, because, right, he is holy, and we're, we're commanded in Leviticus, and then also Jesus, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount says, be holy as God is holy, or be holy as I am holy. So perhaps the, the plumb line is God himself, and God, of course, is in the midst of his people even as they uh, turn from him. Well, at the end of this plumb line, he says there's going to be a sword, right? So the, the imagery turns to one of a sword. And, um, and of course, this is a reference to the Assyrian, the impending Assyrian invasion that we discussed last week, that we've already talked about the horrors of what it is like um, with the, uh, 
with the um, our discussion of Jonah and the video we watched. And it's in this context of this sort of judgment that can't be averted that we it, the 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 text switches now to some narrative to describe an interaction between Amos and uh, a man by the name of Amaziah, who is a priest at Bethel, who confronts Amos. And when he confronts him, he, he's, he's, it seems like they're at Bethel, where there, again, was one of, um, one of the two uh, official places set up for worship in the northern kingdom by Jeroboam right? The, one of those sins that's constantly referred to in the book of Kings, right? The sin of Jeroboam. So uh, Bethel is a, a place where sacrifices were made uh, in, instead of in Jerusalem. Well, uh, it seems like Amaziah sees Amos as a threat. He's, he's concerned about him. Why? Well, because he's preaching against the, the cult practice, the cultists, or the way they are worshiping up in the north. And, of course, Amaziah is the, the, one of the priests. <laughs> so uh, it's, a, it's a threat on his livelihood, and it's a, uh, a threat on his legitimacy as a man of, of, a man of God, right? Um, so Amaziah may also see him as a political operative, because you remember uh, Judah and Israel had had a civil war recently in the relatively recent past. It was the, the, the fathers of the two current kings who had had a, a war together. And uh, Amos is from the south coming up. So he might have seen him as a, as a, uh, a political operative. So he says to him, go away, you seer, the word meaning one who sees, <laughs> So we wanted to talk a little bit, just briefly, about something called the prophetic perspective. So I'm going to switch slides here. I've got a couple of these, and I just borrowed these from someone else. But um, when we read prophetic literature, when you're reading a prophecy about something like, especially like the day of the Lord, something that seems like it, for the prophet, oftentimes there was an immediate fulfillment sometime in his own daytime. And that's what oftentimes that prophet is talking about, but oftentimes there's also another fulfillment sort of further into the future. I don't know if I'm freaking you out with my hand going at the thing, but um, so, so as you see in the picture there, it's like, it's like looking at a mountain range and you don't really see how far away one mountain is from the other. They can kind of look like they're close together when there may be a large gap between them. And so if you think of that in terms of time, then there might be an initial fulfillment that the prophet is describing, but there's something else that they may be referring to that's yet future, and it may be even yet future to us today, that he's describing in the same prophecy without any differentiation between the two. This is how in Joel we can have a fulfillment in Joel's own day, and then we have a fulfillment in the in, with the coming of Jesus, well, with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then we also have yet another fulfillment still future to us in this day of the Lord. And, and this is the kind of thing that we're going, we, we sort of see and we've been talking about in a lot of these prophecies, but especially with regard to these prophecies about the day of the Lord, right? So when, when uh, Amos says, 
you know, don't look for the day of the Lord. Don't be excited about the day of the Lord. It's going to be a day of darkness. It's a day of misery, a day of judgment. He's talking about what he is referring to in his own day, the day of, of judgment upon Israel, because for them, it's going to be a, a really bad day. But for us as believers, we may look uh, at the day of the Lord and see it as, well, that's when Jesus comes back. That's when God sets all things right, right? So it might be something we look forward to. But we also know it's a day of judgment upon the world. And that will be a, even, even something that um, while we look forward to it because we know it's our redemption and we know it's a redemption of God's plan, we also know that there's going to be judgment and that's going to be very difficult to observe because we love others. And, it, and if you think about it from God's perspective, it's very difficult for him as well, right? On the one hand, he's, he's holy, but he also loves. This is why his mercy and his holiness are blended perfectly in him. Uh, but, um, but anyway, I guess I'll move on. So, so here's another slide just showing like sort of from God's perspective, he sees it all. And he can, we could even say he sees it all immediate, right? He, he has a perfect perspective on all of it from, from above. But for the prophet, the prophet's over here looking and seeing all of it again together without, with, sometimes without any differentiation, so Amos, I wanted to introduce that as we as we continue our discussion of the day of the the day of the Lord. But with regard to this, so Amos is one who sees, and he sees immediate and far out. So um, so as Amaziah and Amos are having this um, confrontation, Amos has to kind of um, defend himself. Um, you know, he, he identifies himself. He says, I, you know, I'm not here to, you know, to be political. Um, I'm, I'm a sheep herder. I'm a farmer, but I was called and tasked by God to preach. He says, literally Yahweh took me as I followed the flock. So he's not a professional, uh, polished guy. He's not a shyster. He's not prophesying for money, you know, because Amaziah basically implies like he's there to get money. He's there at a Royal shrine, um, and he says, Hey, go away, go, go back to Judah, go prophesy over there, go eat over there, you know, make your living over there with these crazy <laughs> prophecies. And Amos then reiterates his message to, um, to Amaziah. He says, hear the word of the Lord. And he uses the word Shema for hear. So hear the word of Yahweh. And he talks about the captivity that's going to result in all its, all the terrible consequences, death, um, maybe a, a military rape of the women, um, land is going to be divided up, which was something unimaginable under Jeroboam II. He just conquered all of that territory. But what we see is all these images, one after another, in the preaching of Amos, images of division and disintegration. So he says to Amaziah, who probably will live to see this, I think this is Amos's implication, that Amaziah himself will live to see this, that there will be, you know, his wife will be separated from him and victimized. His children will be taken away, like cut away from him. The land will be cut up. They'll be divided up. And um, Amaziah himself will go into exile. He'll be cut away from his land, literally from the soil. And Amaziah, uh, we've, what we've suggested is that Amaziah is, is kind of like, he's a microcosm of all of Israel. He's representative of what's going to happen to all of Israel as a nation right? What happens to his family is what happens to the whole nation. And it's, it's tragic, but it's also, it's also uh, from their own doing, you know, their own words, their own doing. 
All right. Well, this leads us to uh, Amos's fourth vision, which is a basket of summer fruit um, in, in 8, 1 through 14. And, and just so you know, this is a basket of fruit of Israeli fruit because somebody, I'm not going to say who, chastised me and told me, don't put up a picture of grapes and bananas because they're they got to be Israeli fruit. Well, the word is, <laughs> don't say who it is. I'm the, I didn't. Yeah. So, so, so the word is specifically of the summer. So this, the something of summer. So probably summer fruit. Um, he sees a fruit basket and then God says the end has come. What, what, what does that have to do with one another? So behind there, behind these terms, you behind see that, and behind the picture too. Yeah. Thank you, John, <laughs> for the amazing effect. Yes. Um, so the summer fruit, the word is kites, and the end is hakates. And so because sometimes this is how it works um, in in prophetic literature, it's also poetic. And so there are these <laughs> word plays, and th- th- this is one of them. So if it looks weird to you, <laughs> like here's this fruit, and then God's like, oh, they're doomed. <laughs> this is the end. Um, this is why. This is what's behind. And so he says um, basically in a very emphatic way, not again anymore will Yahweh pass by them, but now he'll pass through and their doom is final. What? Okay. So all their worship and the praise songs that we've been talking about, all of those will be turned into laments and wailing in that day. And even worse than that, it's going to be turned into these, these cries of panic. They're overwhelmed with how many dead bodies are there, like dead bodies everywhere, just thrown around and they, they won't be able to react. They'll be so stunned. It'll be like a stunned silence. Like what, what more can you say? It's best to just keep quiet. Included in this vision of of um, destruction or this vision of um, yeah of, of judgment is also you won't have the word of God anymore. There'll be a famine of the word of God, and the people will be so distressed, uh, so lacking in the word of God that they will stagger around as if they uh, don't have water, as if they don't have food, and you know they'll be weakened. Right. So Jesus says, right, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. Right. And quoting, of course, from the psalm. Well, here there this this is also the same kind of imagery. You won't have the word of God, so you won't really be able to sustain yourself. And so from their sins um, of <clears throat> abusing the poor through their economic practices um, waving away um, religious observance like new moons and Sabbaths, like can the Sabbath hurry up and be over so that we can do some more business and dishonest business at that. He talks about dishonest scales and cheating on the quality of the product. They're selling not just wheat, but even the bad wheat, like even the chaff. And so the Lord is angered by this. And the day of the Lord is going to come as a big cataclysm, just like the Nile is, is heaving, going up and down and up and down. That's what's going to happen um, in their life. And people finally, finally will be driven to seek the Lord and to, to want to know what the Lord has to say, but they won't find the word of the Lord, only punishment because it will be too late for them. Because up until now, instead of seeking the Lord, they had sworn by these false shrines. They had taken oaths by Samaria and Dan and Beersheba as they're listed here. Wait, did you, did you say that the, the people were hoping that the Sabbath, the worship day would be over so they could get back to their football games? Um, I think oh, that, I think oh, that might be what the Hebrew oh, we're says. Stepping, yeah, that's in the Hebrew. <laughs> okay. 
Well, moving on. <laughs> you, want to, you want to get fired. I know, I know, right? I, I, did, hey, I didn't say Alabama or Auburn. I yeah, just said just, football. Yeah, in just general. in general. That's a generic. Yeah. It might be European football. Yeah, probably. Okay, Amos. Soccer. <laughs> that's soccer. Uh, Amos's fifth vision. Um, here he sees then, he sees God standing by the altar at Bethel. And these are, uh, I believe this is an ar- archaeological uh, the dig at Bethel. So this is the actual altar. And this is, I, I think, a reconstruction today. But um, here here we see him beginning to talk about a judgment. And in, in 9 uh, and following, uh, verse 1 and following in chapter 9, again, we see it specific against Israel, against the altar in Bethel. But then you'll see indications here that he's also referring to Judah. Uh, so corporate uh, judgment of God for his people because of their rejection. And we see this in, in 2 Kings. We can, uh, in 2 Kings 17, I've given you the verses here. It, it's, um, it's a description of why did Israel fall. And he says, like in verse 10, just for example, I'll read a couple of verses. They set for themselves sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places, as the nations did, which the Lord carried away into exile before them. In other words, God swept these other people away, told them, don't do like they do. And what did they do? They did what he, they did. And, and uh, he goes on to say it was, it was also in Judah. And so um, it's, it's throughout both Israel and Judah, his people have really rejected him and rejected his law. I think this chapter is very scary. This vision must be absolutely terrifying. I mean, it's been all oracles and and symbolism that um, Amos has been preaching and hearing from the Lord and seeing. And now it's like the Lord himself is standing right there at Bethel. He's about to strike in the heart of the false worship, to strike the altar, the temple, all the fugitives who want to flee. um, They'll all be caught. There's no escape. There's nowhere to go away from God's reach. And you, you might see it you know, through this chapter um, nine, there's this language. It's kind of like Psalm um, 139, you know, like the Lord is everywhere. He's high and low and near and far and east and west. Here it's very threatening that God is absolutely everywhere. He's high in heaven at the top of the mountain. He's low in Sheol on the seafloor, <clears throat> west and east, and he'll, he'll get them anywhere that they go. He'll get them. And even when they go far away into captivity, God will still uh, make them a target of his punishment. Very scary. I'm scared. Well, thankfully, there's good (laughs) news, too. (laughs) Right. God will restore. Right. So the the day of the Lord is followed by a, a restoration. Right. So um, and and I just put note verse 11 fallen. Uh, House of David, also uh, back there in First Kings, uh, back in First Kings seven. I mean, Second Kings seventeen. Uh, it also said Judah also went astray. But here we see, uh, for example, in in verse thirteen, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, uh, and the treader of grapes, uh, him who sows seed. Um, so you're going to see increased and restored productivity. Uh, they're going to be able to return to the land. And he, he uses this language of building. You can build cities and build houses, and you'll be able to live in them. You'll be able to plant vineyards, and you'll be able to eat the produce that they produce. And so it's the reversal of the futility curse, which he had said in um, 511. 
back in, in, in chapter 5, verse 11. And this is also covenant language that was used as part of the promise to uh, the Israelites as they prepare to enter the land. You know, God is going to give you the promised land. And it, it says specifically, part of the promised land is he'll give you houses, you a land with houses you did not build, a land with vineyards you did not plant a land with cisterns you did not dig right it's ready made ready to move into well now after they've been taken from the land because of the judgment of god because of their uh, rejection of him they will be allowed to return to the land but now they're going to have to work as well they're going to have to contribute so there's still there's sort of like um i mean if you think about the 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 part of the uh judgment on adam was you're going to have to work to produce uh, the land, and it's going to be there's going to be some futility there. I don't know what's happening there, but um, anyway. So they're going to be restored to the land, and look at the language in verse 15: never to be uprooted again. So here you have uh, language of of a permanent restoration. This is something that hasn't yet happened even today. So rather than um, seeing like the 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 return from uh, the Babylonian captivity under Cyrus as fulfillment, it's probably not because, again, this is to all the tribes, and it also um, speaks of never being uprooted again, and it's also language, there's also language of peace. Well, in the last couple of minutes, I want to lay out some some theological themes in Amos. And I'm going to move through the first couple of slides quickly because I want to get to the last one. But we see, uh, of course, the doxologies that we pointed out earlier last week, they all point to the identity of the Lord, right? So they're, they're saying who the Lord is. He's the one that walks on the mountains. He's the one, right, that blesses his people. Um, so God's the first theme is God's covenant love for his people by reference to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's shown in his judgment on the neighboring peoples because of how they treated Israel and Judah. It's shown in his promise of restoration to the promised land, right? Reiterating or let's say uh, uh, still uh, holding true to that covenant with Abraham. And in his reminder of provisions, I sent you the prophets, the Nazarites, I brought you out of Egypt, Right, so all those covenants are not nullified, even even under this judgment of his. Second, we see his holiness and his uniqueness shown in his judgment, right? His judgment is a function of his holiness and in his judgment on false worship and false gods, right? His uniqueness. He is the one true God. Next, we also see a sovereignty, what we were talking about in our, you know, what have we been learning during this COVID thing? One of the things is we learn about his sovereignty, and we see this throughout the scriptures, um, right? So he, he can bring blessing, and he can bring uh, disaster. Um, he is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over uh, the beasts, the animals. He's sovereign over nations and kingdoms, um, and even people. Now, I, I, I had to put this note there. We're not told how he exercises his sovereignty. I think too often we defer or we automatically assume that means he's dictating or controlling everything. Uh, I wouldn't say that necessarily, but we know he is sovereign and ruling and governing over all these things. 
He's also sovereign over history, right? The day of the Lord, something yet in the future, uh, something in the, in the future for Amos, something in, even yet in the future for us, uh, are all things that God is sovereign over. And it speaks to his sovereignty over history itself as well. This last thing, his, uh, his concern for justice is what I really wanted us to focus in on, because it's a primary concern in the book of Amos, right? He's, it's, and, and we could say, and I think it's right to say, that his concern for justice is tied to his holiness and his nature as just, right? God is just. God is good. God is holy. He is true. You know, all of that uh, relates back to justice. Well, so what do we mean when we say social justice? Well, first, I would say in the Bible, social justice is tied to the law, tied to the Torah as an expression of God's covenant love for his people. Because when God made his covenant with Abraham uh, and Abram, he, he called him to be a people. And then when they enter the land and they have the Mosaic covenant and they're given the Torah, this is how you live as covenant people. And you follow these laws. And, and that included concerns and laws to protect the poor and the alien and the weak, right? And so when we talk about social justice, that term often refers to social structures uh, like a, a, uh, a prohibition or a judgment upon social structures that take advantage of the vulnerable. Now, this is something of a hot button issue in Southern Baptist circles these days, and I don't want to open a big can of worms and get people upset. So I just want to say this. In the Bible, there is concern for the poor. The concern is that as the people of God uh, and as a nation of godly people, there shouldn't be people starving among you, right? And God sets up rules and, and uh and laws to protect against that. So the the problem in Israel is that people were perverting the law, perverting the Torah, and taking advantage. As we saw, take a cloak in a pledge, and then you hold it and sleep on top of it, and the person, the poor person that you took it as sort of a, 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 a goodwill gesture, you're not showing goodwill, and you're letting them freeze at night. So, uh, so, when we think about these things, you think about social structures that may take advantage of those who are most vulnerable in your society. And so as Christians, we should think about things like tax law and economic theory and property and rights. What does it mean to have rights as citizens of a nation? What does it mean to have rights if you're a person living in the land? What sorts of rights should you have or, or how should you be treated? But here's the thing, right? And, and there are a lot of theologians out there who talk about these things. And one of the concerns is that oftentimes they make this sort of their whole gospel, right? Like, like that's all the gospel is about, is about righting these wrongs. And oftentimes they'll tie these concerns to particular theories, now, what I'm suggesting is that in the Bible, there is concern for these things, and as Christians, we ought to be thinking about them. But here's the, here's the most important part right here. It begins at the individual level of the heart and at the individual level of action. In other words, we as individuals are responsible before God. And at the end of the day, it's all tied to this, right? Do we love God? And if we do, 
then we should act in godly ways. And do we love our neighbor? And if we do, we should act in ways that are commensurate with that love, that show that love, and that uh, demonstrate that love in our concern for their needs. And that doesn't mean adopting any particular economic theory, at least I wouldn't say so. So for Amos, then, this is a concern. And, uh, and, and at the end of the day, Amos's concern is you should love the Lord. And if you do love your Lord, you're going to love your neighbor. And, and the way to do that is to do it in a way that's consistent with what God's word says. Well, real quick, but we, we've, we've, we've put this into the slide deck now. Next week, Hosea 1 through 7, first half of Hosea. And we're at the last slide. <laughs> Questions or comments? Hey, can you guys, um, can you help us a little bit? Uh, you talk about the prophetic perspective. And um, often the prophet's not differentiating between sort of the near fulfillment, far fulfillment. Uh, so as, as Bible readers today, can you help us? Can you give us sort of anything tangible to say, this will help in, in, in reading, interpreting, applying, um, whether or not this is something that has already taken place or we can anticipate in the future. Yes. <laughs> so the, without getting too complicated into like the book of Revelation, for example, which has a lot of different ways people interpret it, I would say one way of looking at it is to – so to look at the background of what's going on in the prophet's own day. And then this is why studying history can be helpful. Sometimes we can see, oh, this seems to have been fulfilled in this day. But also, I would say, looking at when the New Testament authors refer back, do they see it as fulfilled or not? So I'll give you an example. Uh, Jesus uh, refers to the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel at one point in, in, his, uh, uh, in his preaching. And he, he says when you, right, he, he's talking about like signs of the, of the coming of the Lord or the signs of the, of the judgment of God. Well, the fact that Jesus refers to the uh, the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel suggests that it hadn't yet been fulfilled by Jesus' own day. Yet some interpreters, some commentators, try to suggest that uh, an event that happened in the intertestamental period, uh, there was a uh, there was a uh, an emperor, uh, or I guess a, a not an emperor, a leader. Uh, by the name of Antiochus IV, who tried to, he sacrificed a pig on the, on the altar in the Holy of Holies, and he tried to uh, erect a, a statue there. Some people think that was the, um, which, which resulted in a, in a revolt, ultimately, the Maccabean revolt of the Jews. Uh, some scholars think that was the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Well, it clearly wasn't because Jesus refers to it. So uh, refers to it as something yet to be fulfilled in his own day. So in, in, my, in my opinion, when we see in the scripture someone referring to something 
like a New Testament author, a later author referring back and saying this is yet to be fulfilled, then it's yet to be fulfilled. What's interesting is when you have something like uh, Peter referring to Joel chapter 2, he cites part of it as being fulfilled, but then there's another part that he doesn't quote, which a lot of scholars think, well, maybe that's yet future. Um, and we also see some of that being referred to in uh, John's prophecy in Revelation that seems future for him. And uh, so that would be one way. Uh, I think another way is to, is to recognize that sometimes the prophets themselves, I, I would say they're not, they're not required to know everything that they're saying. Does that make sense? So that when Isaiah... Uh, speaks about um, a, a virgin conceiving. The, the, in the Hebrew, it could mean young woman or virgin. In the Greek, in the New Testament, it's only virgin. So in Isaiah's own day, he may not have understood all the ramifications of what he was prophesying as a sign, because in his own day, it was going to be a sign of, uh, of events you know, only only a, a hundred years in the future, 150 years in the future, whereas they also speak, of course, to, to Christ. So sometimes there's not an indicator in the prophecy itself to let us know, um, unfortunately. <laughs> and I think that's sometimes because uh, sometimes because there can be multiple what we might call um, – initial fulfillments and then future final fulfillments. Um, and sometimes the initial fulfillments don't meet all of the criteria, but only some. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. I appreciate that. You know, what's interesting is as you continue reading in Deuteronomy, when you get to the end, um, it's going to look, I mean, it's, it's kind of shocking to read the end of uh, the, the last part of Deuteronomy where there's the blessings and curses and the warnings by, by Moses sort of right before he, he takes off, and um, if you read that over against Solomon's own reign, and then you read it over against, say, Jeremiah's prophecies and lamentations, it's very striking. So it's so striking that some more liberal scholars think that the the last part of Deuteronomy was written much later because it it reads like fulfillment later, you know, in in Jeremiah. And of course, we don't. There's there's no evidence. There's no tech, like there's no manuscript evidence to think it was written much later. It's just some people don't want to believe that God could have inspired Moses to recognize things far in the future. But we see that in the Bible a lot. Hmm. Well, very good. Well, if there are no other questions, then next week, Hosea 1 through 7. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come before you seeking you, seeking your word, and we're so so thankful for John and Stefana for leading us tonight and opening our hearts and our ears to hear your word. Father, we ask that you be with all of those that uh, Chris mentioned earlier that uh, are sick and uh, in the hospital and expecting treatment. And Father, we just ask that you be with them and comfort them. And Father, watch over our church family. 
be with all of them as as we go through this trying time. Uh, comfort comfort them and comfort all of us. And Father, we just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.